Ah, good morning. Well, like you heard, we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. Um, that's the second last book in the Old Testament. Uh, if you find Malachi, just turn back a few pages. And while you're looking there, I think in this, I, we have a lot of visitors here, and I was kind of considering the type of people that would be here listening today, and I think basically we have three type of people. Um, one would be those that maybe have a religious background or not, but they think basically they're a pretty good person. There's not really much to worry about. If there's a judgment someday that my good deeds will probably outweigh the bad deeds. If you're here like that this morning, welcome. We're really glad you're here. There'd be another type of person that their life hasn't been that stellar. It's plagued by sin and addictions and problems, and they're kind of worried they don't know quite how to fix it. Maybe exploring Christianity, other worldviews, philosophies. Um, if you're here this morning and that's you, we're glad to have you also. And the third group would be those who believe the Bible and are trusting in Jesus and are just waiting for him to come and get us, right? We're just glad to be here. So, Zechariah, he has eight night visions. And this passage is part of that. And they're kind of weird, like, you know, you have weird dreams. There's like a woman in a, in a basket and there's a flying scroll but all this stuff has very specific meanings to them. So we have to dig in and try to feel what's going on. This passage isn't quite that difficult. We're going to find out it's about a high priest whose name is Joshua, who is in dirty clothes. So we're going to find out what that's about. And uh, I'd like to hopefully briefly just do a real quick history. We've already been going over this the last couple of weeks about the priests, so hopefully we can do this briefly. Um, first time we meet a priest in the Bible is uh, in Genesis. Abraham goes to meet a fellow with a, a tithe offering. His name is Melchizedek. He's a high priest of God. And uh, he comes out with a, a bread and wine offering, and, and he blesses him. And he's actually the king of Salem. And uh, Salem actually means peace. And in the general area where they met, it was sometime later, Abraham comes back to this little, on a hill close by where they met, and he brought his son Isaac to offer as an offering. But God intervened and provided a ram instead in his place. And he named the place Adonai Yara, which means the Lord will provide, the Lord provides. And he just called it Yara for short. And the area became known as Yara Salem. You can see that now we call it Jerusalem. And that's going to be the center focus of the whole rest of the Bible is the city of Jerusalem. In fact, the, the M at the end of it is a plural in Hebrew, like we'd have an S. It's actually Jerusalem's. I think it might be a picture of maybe the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem the Lord will bring down that Jesus will reign from someday. Okay, so if you're Zechariah chapter 3, we're going to read the first few verses. And just to see what's going on, we're going to go back in and dig into them a little deeper and find out a little bit more about what the, the priesthood is about. I did want to mention, though, that um, there was another type of priest. It was uh, after the order of Melchizedek, there was uh, the priest of the Levites, which we know that they were the ones that did all the animal sacrifices. And basically, that was just a Band-Aid. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he liked to hang out with them and walk with them in the garden. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to expel them out from his presence. But he still loved man, and he still wanted to hang out with them. 
And this sacrificial system where you could take an animal that would die in your place, God would look at that blood and it would cover the sin and he'd hang out with it. And we see, what would, what would you do? You'd bring your, an animal sacrifice that would have to die in your place and the priest would take the blood and they had an area they'd sprinkle on uh, elders and different things. And God would see the blood and not see the sin. But the priest had to offer a sin for himself, first of all. There was all kind of ceremonial washings and anointings that had to be done. And the high priest, is he's a little fancier dress, and on his chest he's got um, the 12 stones with the names of the tribes of Israel, and on his shoulders he has the same thing. And he was to represent the whole nation. It said basically he bore the nation on his shoulders and he was to keep them close to his heart. He was the same kind of priest, but he had another special job that once a year... But God set up this, this tabernacle area, and uh, there was a courtyard around, but in the middle there's a building, and there's like two rooms. There's a holy place and the holy of holies. Once a year, the high priest goes into the holy of holies, and he'd have an incense offering. He'd have the blood of a goat, blood of a bull, a young bull. And it was very, he had to walk in very careful like this and back out. It's very solemn. Walk in again and back out. Uh, you didn't turn your back on God, show him your backside. There's any number of mistakes that could be made, and he would forfeit his life. You probably heard that he used to tie a rope around the high priest's leg in case something happened and he died. Nobody could go in and get him, they could drag him out. Um, only problem is that's not Bible. That's actually Jewish tradition, I think, out of the Talmud. Um, and whether they did or not, it still shows how serious this matter was. So, Joshua is this high priest. He had to be dressed impeccably. So now we'll read the passage. And there's an angel that is guiding Joshua through these visions. We'll see when it says, Then he showed me, this is this angel. And so it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Uh, a little confusing sounding. But basically, Zechariah, he's a prophet, but he's also a Lev- Levitical priest. And when he sees Joshua stand there with filthy clothes on, he knows he's in serious trouble. And standing right there also, before the angel of the Lord, Satan's standing in his right hand to accuse him. And we don't have the words, but he's probably saying, this guy's in filthy rags, he needs to be punished. Now, Satan is not really a proper name. It's more of a title. In Hebrew, it's ha-satan, it's thus Satan. You look at the bottom, it says, your Bible probably says that Satan means the accuser. And he's the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he does. And when I first looked at this, I thought, really? I mean, it's, it's, 
This is pretty obvious the guy's got dirty clothes on. I mean, thank you, Captain Obvious. Why, why did Satan keep, God keep this Satan guy around? It seems kind of mundane. But as you, as you read Scripture, my mind got changed. And in the first vision that he has, there's four messengers on four colored horses that the Lord sends out to patrol the earth. And they come back from patrolling the earth and they say, everything's fine, the, the, the world is at peace. And in Job chapter 1, remember where the sons of God come before the throne one day of the Lord? It says uh, they, they have to kind of check in periodically. And it says, and Satan the accuser was with them. And the Lord asked, where have you come from? And Satan says, well, from patrolling the earth and, and checking everything out. And the Lord says, oh, have you seen my servant Job while you were patrolling? He goes, yeah, I've seen him. I know that guy. And, well, you know the rest of the story. I'm paraphrasing this pretty badly. But you know the story. In the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, at the demise of Satan, the Satan, it says, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. And all of a sudden you realize this is really Satan's job. God has ministers that there's nothing that happens on this planet that goes by unnoticed. They see everything and they're documenting it. And this is, this is like a courtroom scene we'll see in a minute. And he's like the prosecuting attorney. And he's, he's giving firsthand witness accounts. And it's kind of brilliant. You know, and the Bible says in the matter of two or three witnesses, so something be established. So it's not God's word against somebody else. His arch enemy is the one given the prime evidence here. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, standing at his right hand. Now, we just kind of read by that and not even think anything of it, really. But in the Bible, to be at someone's right hand is a place of honor. The left hand is of less honor. And uh, it gives a little bit of formality to this. So he's standing there accusing him. And before the angel of the Lord, now, who is the angel of the Lord? Uh, interesting. We notice... It's not just any old angel of the Lord, it's the angel of the Lord. And he appears numerous times in the Old Testament. Um, by the time of the New Testament, you don't see him anymore. But this is actually I look, the last time that the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible. There's a, kind of an honorable mention of him in chapter 12. This is kind of like his grand finale here. And we're going to see, I think it's quite a grand finale. And he speaks up. He says, and the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. I think basically saying, okay, you've given your testimony, you're done. I'll take it from here. He says, Lord rebuke you. And he says, also the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? He's referring to Joshua here. And it's not really a brand in the fire, it's It's symbolic. But, you know, you've been around a campfire. Where there's a campfire, there's a kid, and they've got to throw sticks in the fire. That's what the, this is. You look at the bottom, the brand is a stick. When the stick's in the fire, it's only in there moments it bursts into flames and it's consumed, right? And that's the picture. Joshua's in the flames of judgment. Because of these filthy rags, he's ready to be consumed. This angel reaches into the fire, plucks him out in the nick of time, and as they're standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with the filthy garments, the angel said to 
those who were standing before him, I don't know, those must be like other attending angels or something, doesn't say. It says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It says he takes away his sin. That's what it means to take away your iniquity. And they might have forgot something here. Zechariah seems to have some nerve. He noticed something missing. He also adds, Mr. Angie forgot the, the turban. I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord standing by. So we have Satan, the adversary, we're going to call the accuser. Joshua, the high priest, is obviously accused. And the angel of the Lord does for Joshua what he can't do himself. He kind of advocates for him. We're going to call him the advocate. So it kind of makes for a nice title. The accuser, the accused, and the advocate. Now we're going to read the rest of the passage. Starting at verse 6, it says, Now the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord of hosts, like the Lord of heaven's armies, he takes his title for himself. Some of the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Bible, we see it when Moses was in Midian tending sheep and he saw a burning bush. Remember, he went up to see what it was. It's, wow, this is interesting. It said, the angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the bush. And he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he even told Abraham his name was I am. So this is the voice of God speaking out of the bush. Later in, in Egypt, when the night that the Egyptian firstborn were killed, it was the angel of the Lord that killed them. And later, the Assyrian army was encamped around Jerusalem, and they were going to attack it and destroy it in the morning, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. This is a powerful, judging angel who speaks as God. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are set before you, they are, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's a picture of peace and tranquility. So one other thing I'd like to, to mention before we go on here. Sometimes if you're studying the Bible, it helps to go into another version. The NLT version, when it shows Joshua the high priest standing before the angel, it's, it's, he's called Jeshua or Jeshua. It's not a misspelling. It's not another person. That's just going from the, the old languages into English. It kind of comes out spelled differently. And probably closer to how it was pronounced originally, but... It couldn't have been Jeshua because there's no letter in the Hebrew alphabet that has a J sound. The letter is actually a Yod, which is the smallest letter in the alphabet. To us, it looks like a little apostrophe. And it would be pronounced probably Yeshua. And in our language, we would say that's how Jesus, Jesus' name was probably Yeshua in Hebrew. So it's kind of interesting that this angel of the Lord who speaks as God and and then the high priest's name is Yeshua, and you think, what, what is going on here? But I'd like to point out, I think, the key verse in this 
It's down in verse 9 when, as the Lord is speaking, he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I would propose that this is the day that Jesus was crucified. That was the day that he removed the iniquity of the land. And it's pictured the night before he was crucified. We, we rehearse this every communion. Jesus takes some bread, last meal with his disciples. This is my body, which will be broken for you. This cup of wine, this is the cup of my blood, which will be shed for you for the remission of sins. A remission of sins all through the Old Testament, remember, was to cover sins and basically so men could hang out with God again. But he says, and this blood is the blood of the new covenant to replace the old covenant of all those animals that were killed, the thousands and thousands of animals that were killed. You know, people say, well, I'd like to have lived in the Old Testament days. That would have been neat. I think, picture yourself what that would have been like. It was a long trip to get to to Jerusalem to get to the temple. The topography over there, there's hills and there's no straight. I mean, we think it's bad enough going around Middle Ridge here. You have to go around the block. They had to go way around to get to the city. And you think, so you go, and if it was a long ways and you couldn't bring an animal, you could go buy one. So you get, go to the high priest, you get your sins forgiven, and you're on your way home, and it feels so good to have your sins forgiven. Well, then, first thing that happened, you get in a fight with your wife, and you start yelling at her, and the kids are acting up, and you yell at them, and then your donkey acts up, and you're beating the donkey and yelling at some other guy out there would cut you off with his donkey and you get road rage and you're <laughs> yelling at him and and you oh stop we stop stop we gotta go back. <laughs> I mean seriously. You you turn around, you go back, you offer another sacrifice. <sighs> Fine, you get on the road again. About that time your wife says, you know, you really got to get your act together. <laughs> we can't afford all these bulls and goats. I mean, that's quite expensive, right? Uh, you can picture that would be me. I know. <laughs> Thought I'd get sidetracked here. <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus is the one who um, <clears throat> is saying he's establishing a new covenant, his blood. And also, when John the Baptist introduced him as his baptism, remember he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world." Jesus is claiming he's not only shedding his blood, he is the sacrifice. Not only that, as the high priest, he's going to be the one that takes the blood and goes into the Holy of Holies and puts it on the God's mercy seat. We didn't talk about that, but I think you all know the Ark of the Covenant is where he went into it. And that was really a picture of what was in heaven. And he actually, I believe, took his blood into heaven because there was no priest that could take his blood on earth. That whole system had really fallen apart by this time. Hebrews 10, 12 says, if you think I'm making this up, it says, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There we go, the right hand again. It says, and unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. But this he did once for all when he offered himself. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, he says he's called a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which is actually a superior order to the Levitical priesthood. This is all tied together. The Bible is not that hard to understand. Everything in the Bible that happens in the Old Testament is leading up to what Jesus did. It's all a type and a picture. 
And the New Testament is just explaining it and taking the Old Testament and explaining it. And that's what's being done here. Jesus, through this one sacrifice, succeeded in taking away human sin forever. It didn't have to be done day after day like with the animals. Not only that, there's one other thing. And to me, it struck me with this turban, this strange thing about the turban. You know, the Bible doesn't ever say Jesus wore a turban, right? In fact, it didn't even say he wore anything on his head. But as a Jewish male, he would have had to have some kind of head covering, I think, to go in a synagogue or something. But there is one, one head covering that the Bible says Jesus wore, if you think about it. It was a crown of thorns. And that goes back to the Garden of Eden again when the Lord put a curse on the land because of the sin. That the, from now on, they're going to get weeds and thorns and thistles. And the Romans didn't know that. They weaved this crown. And it wasn't just little thorns. These were big, spiky things. And they nailed it into his scalp and his skull. What was that about? And Galatians 3.13 explains that. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy. He, he bore everything. He bore the curse. He bore the sin. He took it all on himself. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story about a, a king who was going to have a wedding feast. Remember, he invites all the important people in town to it. He sends his servants out, and the servants come back and says, well, they're, they're declining. This guy bought a piece of property. He has to go check. Another guy, he bought a yoke of oxen. He has to check. And he says, well, then go out and beat the bushes and get everybody you can. Get all the sick and the lame, the, the homeless. I want people at my wedding feast. The people show up at the feast, and they're all given nice white clothes to wear. But during the feast, the, the king's walking around, and he notices one fellow that doesn't have a wedding gown on, and he's furious. He says, throw that guy out into the darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now that's one thing you don't want to hear in the Bible. That's a bad thing when you hear that. You're cast from the presence of God. I mean, God is light. When you're away from it, it's pitch dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. It's Everything's totally black. But you can hear. You can hear the screams. And I can't help but wonder when Jesus told the story from the back of his mind, he wasn't thinking that he knew he was going to be that guy. So way on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing all those sins, all that curse, abandoned from God. Now, I don't remember if I said in the beginning, but when I was talking about the three kind of people, I wanted to say that this passage is going to have application for all three kind of people. And I go, that's actually where I'd like to, to get to now. So kind of in, in your mind's eye, where you see in the first verse, it talks about Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Like, you don't have to really do this, but in your mind, just take an eraser and erase Joshua's name. So you have a blank space there. I said, now here's where the rubber meets the road. I said, I want you to write your name there. Every last one of us is going to be standing in this spot someday. Hebrews 9.27, it says, It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. None of us will escape this time. 
And I'd like to have a little uh, illustration, I think, maybe to where we're going next. I remember going through school, you had to take tests all the time through the year, and they hated those things, exams. Like, why, why do we have to take these things? Well, because you don't want to get to the final exam and not know this subject and flunk it. Because if you flunk it, you're going to be left behind. You won't advance. Of course, now this illustration probably falls apart. I don't think they hold people back anymore. But some, at any rate, God has given us a great gift that we can test ourselves so we don't flunk this final exam, that we can examine ourselves in the meantime. It's called the Ten Commandments. Now, I always thought of those as, you know, God didn't want you to have any fun. And, and he says, all these thou shalt not. He's just looking over the parapet of heaven waiting for somebody to break one. And he says, didn't I tell you not to do that? Now you're really going to get it. I go, now, God is holy. We're not to sin. I get that. But I, I, that's not why he gave them. He says, it's an exam. So I'd like to start with the first people that I was thinking about, of those who think, well, they're basically, they're a pretty good person. They're not too worried. Now, you don't have to answer out loud or raise your hands or anything. Just take this test of yourself. Let's see how you do. We'll start with the first commandment. And basically, I have to do the first commandment is we're to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, everything, right? God says, I'm the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have other gods before me. No idols. Oh, that's good, I don't have any idols at home. Well, in the Bible, idols is more than that. It's anything in your life you put before God. Could be your job, or money, entertainment, sports, relationships. People that do that, that, that's an idol. It's called idolatry, and people that practice that, put anything before God, you're an idolater. Next commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God shall not call and hold him blameless who does that. Why do we take God's holy name and use it as a cuss word or a swear word? We don't even take our mother's name and do that. Anyone that does that, that's blasphemy. You're a blasphemer. Thou shalt not steal. If you've ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you, you're a thief. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Lying. Oof. If you ever told lies, even one lie, you're a liar. I'll kind of glom some of these together now. Uh, it has to do with sexual purity. And says, uh, you know, any sexual relationship outside of marriage is fornication. Anything that breaks the bond of a marriage vow is adultery. I think, well, I never did that. But in the Sermon on the Mount, in, Ch- in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus addresses this as if you heard it said you're not to do this, but he says, I say, if anyone even looks at somebody of the opposite sex and in their heart, you know, has a fantasy, has lust in their heart, says you're guilty of adultery. And the last one I saved, usually it's the first one, says, thou shalt not kill. Because everybody says, well, I never killed anybody. And, well, that's good, but have you ever wanted to? Have you ever been so mad at someone Jesus says in that same sermon, if you just call someone a fool, you're guilty of murder. So all of a sudden, oh my, we're murderous, adulterous, fornicating, lying, thieving, blasphemous, idolaters. <laughs> yeah, let that sink in for a minute. And now all of a sudden we see something, though. When Joshua... I don't know if you thought of this. If anybody should have passed this test, 
it should have been Joshua standing before the Lord, right? I mean, this was like the holiest guy on the planet. This was the only man alive that could go into the Holy of Holies and come back out and live to tell about it, right? He should have passed it, but he's severely judged. He's, he's been thrown in the fire of judgment. And now we see something, too, I didn't mention. It says, when he's dressed in filthy garments, that word for filthy is the filthiest word they have for filthy. It's, it's not just that he stepped in cow dung or something and splashed in mud. It's like the, the grossest, foulest, smelliest, nastiest word for sin there is. And we see that man looks at the outside, right? But God sees deep down into the heart what's going on. It's like with Jesus, when he and his disciples were chastised by the Pharisees for eating with unwashed hands. And he, he says, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you. It's for out of the heart comes murders and lies and all this stuff. It says, the human heart's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Need to move on. Now, how about the second group of people that know that they've messed up and sinned? I'd like to just say one thing. If, if that's something that's been bothering you, and you think, why am I so different? You look around, it looks like everybody else has got their act together, right? How come I'm the one that has all these problems? I said, look around again. I said, there's not a person in this room that just passed that test. I said, the only difference is you're, you're honest enough to admit it. <laughs> the other thing, if this is concerning you, that's also a good thing. Because in Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's when you just start to realize that, that God is God and you're not. And, and that's a very healthy thing. He wants you to, to realize that. It's like Jesus says, fear not, man. Don't fear the guy, somebody who can kill the body, and after that there's nothing he can do. He says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after kills a body, has power to throw the soul into hell. That, him you shall fear. And, and if you're starting to see, well, maybe there's some sense of this, but... Is that, is, is that really the final answer, this Christianity? I still want to check around and see if maybe there's some other philosophy or religion out there. Well, again, the Bible comments on all this thing. Let's look at what Galatians 2.21 says. It says, For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If you get that, for keeping the law, if there was anything possible, anything else out there that anybody could do, to solve this sin problem, then why did Christ come and die? God, that was a big mistake. But that's not the case. There's no other way. Peter said in, in Acts 4, 2, he says, For there is salvation in no one else, as there's no other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. When I first started reading the Bible, the verses that struck me, I know the one is John three sixteen, right? Everybody knows it, but it's still a great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Says, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, that, that the world should be saved through him. A few verses later, he says, He who has the son has life, but he who has not the son has not life, and the wrath of God abides on him. Another place he says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but, but by me. Also, Jesus talks about this day. He had, he had said that all judgment had been given unto him, and he talks about the day where he separates the sheep from the goats, 
the sheep he puts on his right hand, place of honor, the goats he separates to go to perdition. And on that day, it sounds like there, people will get a chance to actually like defend themselves. And, and Jesus says on that day, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick in your name. We went to church and we put money in the place. Anything you can think of probably you'll be trying to say. And all Jesus says is, depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. And you can tell by their very words, they just condemn themselves, right? Because they says, we did all these things and we've seen there's nothing you can do. And when he says, depart from me, because I never knew you, that word know there in the Bible is kind of an intimate word that basically has to do with like a husband-wife relationship, the closeness that's a physical closeness, the mental, spiritual. And basically Jesus is saying, depart from me, I never had an intimate relationship with you. It's basically what he's saying. And we see it comes, comes around that through his sacrifice, you not only get salvation, but you get Jesus. That's the point. Remember, he wanted us to hang out with man. You get to have him now, have a relationship, talk with him, walk in the cool of the day. Well, how do you talk with him, and how does he talk back? And well, that's what prayer is, and he talks to us through the Bible. So you think of this. So I, I have been mentioning all these things, and you say, okay, I, 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 it makes sense, but how do I take this for myself? You haven't said anything about that. I go, you just have to ask. Jesus, anybody that comes to him and asks, he won't turn away. It's simple as that. You just say, Lord, I flunked the test. I can't make it. Please pull my stick out of the fire, however you word it. These are all pictures that we can see. And if you do that for yourself, if you ask Jesus to do that, you become like the third group of people that I talked about that love the Bible, love Jesus, and they're given white garments. There's many many places in the Bible that promise this. Revelation 1.9, John, John looks and he beholds a great multitude that no one could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. And they're all standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white clothes. In another passage in Revelation 3, Jesus says, He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father. That's what you want to hear. The book of Hebrews says he will not be ashamed to do that either. He's looking forward to it. And, and all of a sudden we see that now there's not three groups of people anymore. There's just two. There's those that are trusting in Jesus that are redeemed and those that aren't trusting that aren't redeemed. We've had this verse quoted to us several times the last couple of weeks, real quickly from Philippians, where because of all the work that Jesus has done for us, God has highly exalted him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow under heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God, Father. We always consider that's the redeemed, but it says every tongue will do that, even the unredeemed. I think how bitter that'll be someday to, to know this and to confess his name and realize what, what you've missed, what, what could have been. I'm going to close here with just two little quick verses from the Bible that kind of encourage us. And before we do that, usually on a message like this, there's some kind of invitation to, 
you know, if you have any questions about this, you know, stick around, you know, stay afterwards, talk with some of the leaders or the pastors or, I say, you could also, this is a Bible church, you could ask any member here. I say, go up to somebody and say, are you a member? Does this really work? And be ready because you're probably going to get a long answer. <laughs> Most people love to talk about what Jesus has done for them. So I say, don't rush. That's what this building's here for. That's what we're here for, to get this word out. And we want to make sure you understand it. And the Bible encourages you that today, if you hear this voice, don't harden your heart. To hear his voice, I, I think when I read the scriptures first and thought of that, it was like, as I started to understand it, it was like, well, choose, pick, which way are you going to go? That's what that is. You have to, what are you going to do? Choose. And to harden your heart, that's like those guys that rejected the wedding invitation. Says, I'm too busy. I got other things to do. Every time you do that, it hardens your heart a little bit more, doesn't it? It can be so calloused that you might never get soft again. So watch out. Second Corinthians says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. There might not be tomorrow. That's the Bible admonition, so... Let's close in prayer. <laughs> well, I thank you, Lord. For me, this passage had just way, way too much information. And but I think it's one of the best passages in the Scripture. It, there's so much hidden in plain sight, and we thank you for it, and we pray now that your Holy Spirit will speak to hearts, draw people to yourself, and that Jesus would receive the glory. Amen.